The first time I saw The Exorcist was in my house. I was alone, and there was a lot of anticipation building up to it because I heard a lot about it, and I always wanted to see it. I, William Friedkin, I remember the director. Also, I first heard about him because he was denounced or said some bad things about one of my favorite directors, David Lynch, so I said I should look at one of his best works. So I wanted to watch The Exorcist. I was prepared to be scared. I wanted to be very scared. But what it turned out is I just... At the end of it, just thought of it as a very good film, but I wasn't. It wasn't too scary. And as soon as I saw it, one of my other friends who wasn't that familiar with horror, I went like the day after, the day after that, and saw it with him. And also, I'd been told by like my mom and everyone else, "Oh, don't watch The Exorcist. You'll have nightmares for weeks. You won't be able to sleep." That's what my mom said because she saw it when it came out when she was ten. It's one of my favorite films. I do like it. It's just I don't find it that scary. It doesn't. Okay, so I heard, so we're on the bus from my dad to, yeah. go to Dallas mm-hmm. for one time. When I was little, uh, my dad a, ran it. When I was little, my dad, church, a man came out of the restaurant. Yeah, it's a story. Somewhere between science and superstition. There is another world. The world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. Probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. The one hope, the only hope, the exorcist. Hello, and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam, and we're here to tell you a story. Every week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our facts and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Today, we want to take a second to thank all of our listeners. We love all of you. We've got a great response to this podcast. It's just continued to grow tremendously. And we want to encourage you all to rate and review on iTunes. If you can just give us some stars, and talk about how fabulous we are. That would be lovely. And now I'm going to go hide because I don't like asking people to do things like that. We need our egos stroked a little. No, we don't. Thinking, if you want to leave a suggestion for a topic in your review, that would be great. Yeah, we also have a new website that we're working on. It's justastorypod.com. Go a little more in-depth into our stories. You'll be able to find some links and videos and things like that. Also, you can reach out to us on Twitter at storypod. But back to the subject at hand. The reason you're listening to this, this is our super special edition, the just a movie podcast and this is what we're going to do every few weeks um most likely every fourth episode and we'll discuss very popular famous movies that have built up a story itself like they've grown to have their own mythos these are kind of cultural institutions in pop culture and this week we've chosen a movie that definitely has a, a few legends of its own the Exorcist. The Exorcist. That's the scariest movie ever made. That's what they tell me. It, it definitely has that title 
anyone that you talk to from that generation will immediately tell you, that's the scariest movie ever made. Oh my God, the time I saw it. You're going to hear Silence of the Lambs for one set of people. Another set of people is going to say Psycho. And another set of people is going to say, I'm not sure what our generations will be. The Ring. Oh, The Ring. People definitely... That freaks people out a lot. But yeah, horror moved a different direction with us. But this is one of those great 70s horror movies with those tight shots and quick cuts and all manner of directorial hoodoo. And so this movie came out in December 26, right after Christmas, in 1973. It made $66 million at the box office. I bet it made $66.6 million. Probably so. And that time, you know, add inflation in, it's a ton of money. And then said to have made several more hundred million dollars on re-releases and DVD sales. Now, this movie was originally based on a book by the same title by William Peter Blatty. And then he turned around and wrote a screenplay about it. And it was picked up by Warner Brothers and they tried to sell this movie to everybody. Tried to get lots of different directors to do this. Kubrick was one. Kubrick, who directed my favorite scary movie, The Shining. The Shining is in the category all its own. That's barely horror. That's psychological warfare is what that is. And one of the directors turned it down saying that he felt it was really unlikely that they could find a 12-year-old to carry this movie that could act and do the terrible, creepy, weird things that Linda Blair ended up doing in the movie. So eventually, uh, they did get William Friedkin to direct it. And this was right after he had done uh, a classic film, The French Connection. And we'll go into the interesting things that William Friedkin did to make this movie. He definitely had his own approach. After the movie was made, it was released and quickly earned the tag of the scariest movie ever made. Some towns refused to show the movie, mm-hmm. and with its growing popularity, people began to take bus trips to go see it. Uh, people fainted and vomited during the film. Uh, one man even passed out and broke his jaw, and of course tried to sue Warner Brothers for putting those subliminal messages of self-harm in the film. Were there any subliminal messages in this film? There actually were. No. <laughs> I don't think he he got very far with this lawsuit. Right, there are some subliminal clips into the movie of the demon faces to kind of catch people off guard and make people feel uncomfortable. They're not subliminal messages telling people specifically to do anything, to be clear. that was, But they were intentionally included in the film to jar people out of their complacency and scare the shit out of them. They were put in there to scare the shit. The most famous cutaway in the film is actually to Eileen Dietz, who is a body double for Linda Blair. Uh, but she was done up in this really creepy demon makeup i'll put up a photo on the website actually yeah very famous image it was used on some of the re-release posters the movie was eventually nominated for 10 oscars including best director best picture which was one of the first horror movies ever be nominated do you know what the only horror movie to ever win best picture is what is it silence of the lambs really truly is a great movie also best supporting actress with linda blair oh well i can think of a few reasons that might cause some eyebrows to be raised right because she really was only in some of the movie because you know, a lot of body doubles that famous spider walk scene that was edited back in is a body double as so. is the slapping of the mother across the face because right. they thought they needed a slap with more heft which i think is a great word so that kind of thought pattern is a great example of 
what the director, uh, Friedkin, did for his directing. He was like a method director. Right. You hear of method actors like, oh, is it Nicolas Cage that had teeth pulled without anesthetic to like get into character or you know Heath Ledger going insane during his isolation for the Joker and that eventually leading to his suicide and you hear these stories you seldom hear of someone who's put in charge of an entire production that's method but Friedkin kind of was so what's what's one of your stories about Friedkin's crazy method I love that he actually hired a real Jesuit priest, and that's one of the other priests in the movie, not one of the two main priests. Right. He's the one that's seen taking confession from one of the priests toward the end of the movie, I believe. He wanted him to look extremely shocked. He was just not happy with the performance he was giving. So if you're William Friedkin and you have a priest on set who's not giving you quite the performance you were hoping that they would deliver... What would you do? Well, if I were him, I would pull him aside, tell him that he loved him, and slap his face. Then push him to his knees and yell, action. That is, that sounds effective. (laughs) Another one of Friedkin's very eccentric demands for the film was that they be allowed to shoot the opening scene in a rat. And so the opening scene is where you find one of the priests at an archaeological dig and they find the demon statue of Pazuzu. I'd seen the film a few years ago and I was reading through some notes and I was like, what do they mean filmed in a rat? Couldn't remember the scene. I'm sure people do. It is like two minutes. It doesn't come back. There's no callback to it. You know, like. Well, there is. They do do the little flashbacks to the demon statue. Some of the subliminal cuts are to it. Oh, well then. Totally justified. But during the time in Iraq, Friedkin endured 130-degree heat, illness among the cast and crew, a thwarted government coup, and the statue was accidentally shipped to Australia. So that proved a very quick, easy little jaunt. There's no way they could have, you know, mocked that up in Death Valley or anything. Definitely not. No one's ever done that. No. And then, of course, in the movie, the characters are just thrown around. You have Linda Blair's character, Reagan, and she's thrown up and down, up and down in the bed. And when she was doing that, screams of her calling for help are said to be actually screams of her hurting. Right. Linda Blair said that in an interview. She's like, my lines were help make it stop. And there was no way to indicate that I actually wanted them to make it stop. And I needed help. She needed a safety word. She needed a safety word. Like mashed potato. Cabbage. Oh. We need to have this discussion. <laughs> and then the mom also gets thrown in one scene, and she ended up injuring her cossacks, which is her tailbone. She broke it. She had a lifelong injury after that. Yeah, she had back pain for the rest of her life from this. And that scene where she has that look of pain and anguish on her face was definitely kept in the movie. Right, because that's what you do if you're William Freakin. Here's another crazy thing he did. He refrigerated the set. Right, I just remember in the movie, and when they're breathing, you can see their breath. Today's world... That would be done with CGI. Right, easy. But back then, the easiest way to do that was to go and build a set in a warehouse and refrigerate the whole thing to below freezing, naturally. Other weirdness about the set built in the warehouse, the entire thing was built on the surface of a ball so that it had a weird pitch to it. The bed was built on a forklift. There were piano wires suspended from the ceiling to aid in levitation. There's a great scene in the movie. It's the climax. The priest played by Von Sindow, who is an amazing actor. He's still in movies. He's been in more movies than you can count. 
he in the climax he is casting out the demon from Reagan and he's just screaming and the ceiling is cracking and it's when he's finally able to defeat the demon. And that time, Freaking just was not getting the response he wanted. Command was for the demon to leave in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Freaking spent three days trying to get the line reading he wanted. And he went through 20 fake ceilings doing this. Finally, he pulled Von Sadao aside and said, you know, what is going on? Why can you not get this? And he admitted that he just does not believe in God. Freaking asked him, well, then how were you able to play Jesus in the greatest story ever told? And he replied that he played Jesus as a man, not a God. Freaking then looked at him and said, well, then play this as a man. So now went away for an hour, came back and gave the scene that you see in the movie. It's interesting to note that Fonseca was around 40 years old, and to turn Reagan, Linda Blair, into that demon that you see throughout the movie took makeup artists about three hours. But to get that aging effect that was so convincing on Sidow, it took four hours in makeup daily. An additional hour. And so some of the legend that has grown up around The Exorcist is that there was a curse on the film. I mean, some weird stuff did happen. There are about nine deaths associated with the film, like within cast and crew and family members and things like that. Two of the actors whose characters died in the film actually died after production was complete, but before the movie was released. Von Sydow's brother died during the filming, and he actually had to leave production for a while and go back to Scotland for a funeral. And Jason Miller's son, who was a toddler at the time and would go on to be in Lost Boys, Uh, was hit by a motorcycle and hospitalized. There was also an unexplained fire on the set that destroyed it, and it had to be rebuilt. They couldn't find a cause. They couldn't find anything indicating what had happened, other than it started in Reagan's bedroom on the set. Ooh, creepy. Right. I knew that with this, the cast and crew at the time even thought that the set was haunted or that it was possessed. They had the priest that was on set that was there as their religious liaison was asked to exercise the set. He said, no, that would make it worse. But then eventually he did bless the set. I won't exercise it. I'll just bless it a little. And we talked about Ellen Burstyn, who is the mother who was injured on set. And then Linda Blair even predicted one of the crew members' deaths. Accurately. I couldn't find more information about that. I really wanted to, but I just thought we needed to throw it in here. One of my favorite stories about it is that it did premiere at the Metropolitan Theater in Rome. And the theater just stood a short distance from two 16th century churches, each adorned with massive crosses. And as the audience members filed in, a great storm started. And right when the movie was starting, they heard a huge crack of thunder. Lightning had struck one of the crosses that was over 400 years old. And it fell and landed in the center of the plaza. That reminds me of when we were living in Shreveport and lightning struck the church steeple at the end of that street, like the big church in downtown old Shreveport, and it fell and landed on that person's car. You remember that? And the person was in it. It was severely injured. Yep. It's hilarious. I feel like that's like a literal godsmack. <laughs> it, really, it really is. You know, poor guy. But it really is. So this is a... Great movie, and everyone kind of knows the basic facts of it, pretty much. Right, there's a young girl named Reagan McNeil. 
she becomes possessed by demons, priests are called in, they get rid of the demons. Very Ooh. simple plot. Lots of cool effects. Your mother sucks cocks in hell. Masturbating by the cross. And now you have the gist. This seems like some great Hollywood fiction. Without a doubt. But you know us. We've done our homework. And it turns out there's a It's l- just a story. Uh, bye, guys. Okay, he was kidding. It's not just a story. Vladdy actually based his book on a 1949 case involving a young boy named Roland Doe. So Roland Doe was actually possessed by demons? Yeah, it looks that way. So he was a 14-year-old boy who lived in Maryland, and he had an aunt named Harriet. And he and Aunt Harriet kind of got into the throes of a spiritualist tangent and decided to make a homemade spirit board and devise a system for communicating with spirits. Kind of like a Ouija board. It's very much like a Ouija board, but not made by Parker Brothers. It was a little bit more elaborate than that, from what I understand. It's oftentimes condensed in the telling to say that they played with a Ouija board, but I think that they were a little bit more involved than that. And so Aunt Harriet passed away suddenly. God only knows what happened to Aunt Harriet, because a lot of stuff happened to Roland. I'm going to call him the boy for the purposes of this, because I don't... Well, Roland Doe is a pseudonym. Yes. And he's also called Robbie in some of the text. That's why it gets confusing. After Aunt Harriet's death, her family witnessed furniture moving and objects flying. And things would levitate whenever the boy was close to them. So what would you do if this happened? I can't imagine this happening. Well, they called their Lutheran minister. Okay. His name was Miles Schultz. He said, you know, just send him to me for a few days. We'll get him sorted out. But being a Lutheran (laughs) and not a Catholic with all the... Stage presence. If anything, Catholics can put on a great show. They do. Oh my goodness, the pageantry. Lacking that, he said, you know, I think he's better served by another denomination. You need to get yourself a good Catholic. So they did. They chased down a priest in Maryland called Reverend Edward Hughes, who did an exorcism at Georgetown University Hospital. But during the course of that, Roland wounded Reverend Hughes by cutting him with a bedspring that he had pulled from a mattress during the course of the exorcism. So Hughes kind of demurred. That sounds like it didn't go too well. It didn't seem to go too well. As things were getting worse and it was becoming more and more clear that Roland was going to need more help, the word Lewis appeared scratched in his skin across his abdomen. And at that point, they took it as a sign and the family relocated to St. Louis, where they had family. So what did they do in St. Louis? Well, they called more Catholics. Always. That's what you do. They got in touch with two priests named Raymond Bishop and William Bodron, and they went to visit the boy in the relative's home. And while they were there, they witnessed furniture moving and him speaking in a guttural voice. He had an aversion to sacred objects, which means that basically anything associated with the church, Christ, Mary, Jesus, any of the big dogs, he was not having. But he would recoil, he would react violently. And at that point, they requested permission to do an exorcism. They were granted permission on the condition that it remained secret and that a diary of the entire ordeal be kept. The secret exorcism seemed to be a trend. A theme, yes. I mean, if you were the Catholic Church, would you want this getting out? Well, I can understand that. It seems so archaic, you know, to to modern sensibilities, even in 1949. It seems like something from another era. 
In fact, these were very rarely done and had been in a steady decline since the 18th century. After being granted permission to do the exorcism, priests normally fast for three days and then begin reading from a text known as the Rituale Romanum, or the Roman Ritual. So the Roman Ritual is not just for exorcisms. Rite of exorcism is contained within in that book exactly it seems like just in reading a lot of people it's kind of that misnomer that the roman ritual is the exorcism but it contains like the rites of marriage and all the other big rites that the catholic church does we protestants don't have books like these books are pretty cool missing out i didn't say we didn't want them but envy is a sin you know but anyway they conducted the ritual 30 times his last station in his moves around the St. Louis area was St. Vincent's Asylum in Normandy. He was also housed in another Catholic hospital as well as a retreat called the White House. It's important to note that that last Catholic hospital became... Condos! Always. If there's a creepy building and you don't know what to do with it, you should probably turn it into condos. This could be like a TLC show. Oh, with any luck, flip your paranormal home. But interestingly, on that condo note, the exorcisms were conducted on the fifth floor of that building. Do you know what's not on the fifth floor of that building? Condos. Right, it's empty space. It's actually um, low-income housing. Condos makes it sound ritzy. So, like, you know what? This place is haunted. Let's give it to the poor people. But even the poor people wouldn't live on the fifth floor. So they had him finally at St. Vincent's Asylum. They continue to perform the exorcisms while keeping this diary. So have a great account of what happened. The diary survives. This isn't like, and we found two pages of it and think this is what maybe happened. No, there are two complete intact copies of the diary, which were actually only found after Baldwin's death. Later of natural causes, to be clear. So in the diary, there's just these great, great quotes from it. It's saying that next the father began the litany of the saints, as indicated in the exorcism ritual. In the course of the litany, the mattress began to shake. Even while the institution of the Blessed Sacrament was explained to Roland, his body was badly scratched and branded. The word hello was printed on his chest and thigh. Roland was awake. The shaking ceased when Father Bowden blessed the bed with holy water. Prayers of exorcism were continued and Roland was seized violently so that he began to struggle with his pillow and the bed clothing. The arms, legs, and head of Roland had to be held by three men. They also, in the course of this process, realized that the boy was not a baptized Catholic and being Catholics themselves believed they'd begin to see the problem. So they got permission from the church to have this boy baptized as a Catholic during the ritual, which is highly unusual. But this was expediated by the whole, you know, Satan being inside of him thing. So by the end of the exorcism, after doing this like 30 times, eventually the young boy unexpectedly cries out, Satan, I am Saint Michael. I command you to leave this body now. And his body goes into violent spasm. And then he utters, he is gone. And everything worked out fine and now he's a rocket scientist. Seriously. Really? He's a rocket scientist. He works for NASA. He's old now. He did work for NASA. Right, but he never talked about this publicly, which, in my opinion, kind of lends to its credibility. In a way, you have to wonder, a lot of times we do associate this with psychological disorders, which we will go into in a little bit. It's like, this guy was perfectly fine after, for what we know. For what we know. I mean, you have to be pretty well-adjusted, I would think, to get through astrophysics curricula. Or completely not. True. 
Do you think Neil deGrasse Tyson was ever possessed by demons? Maybe he is. That's why he ruins everything, like Star Wars. We know that this happened, that there was a boy who was exercised, but maybe there's a bigger question to answer. Like, the idea that all of this exists kind of over in the shadows somewhere and is sanctioned by a body as large as the Catholic Church is sort of mind-boggling. So let's kind of start at the beginning and unpack that. You, having grown up in Catholic schools, may take for granted the idea that people find this odd, but they do. Right, well, you know, before the release of this film, Western exorcism was very rare. You know, exorcisms had continued to decline through the 18th century to the mid-20th century. Now, after this movie was released in the, in the 60s and 70s, along with, I'm sure you can add in the drug culture and the other things that were going on around that time period, there was a minimum 50% increase in the number of exorcisms performed. And so to do an exorcism, as we touched on, you have to do the formal exorcism, which is a Catholic rite included in the ritual Romani. The ritual lists guidelines for conducting an exorcism and for determining when a formal exorcism is required. So, you know, like, priests and demonologists have to come out and say, yeah, there's a it's demon. It's legit. Yeah, there's a demon in there. and That's a legit demon, bro, is actually what they're required to say. Is that what um, your favorite, favorite Warrens would say? My favorite, favorite Warrens would say, that's a legit demon, bro. Or, no, they'd actually say, oh, oh, honey. Oh, it's a terrible demon. I can just see. I'm wringing my hands, too, for a fact, if you can't see. But that's how Lorraine Warren talks. She calls everyone honey, and I love her. Right. They would come out, and a demonologist is a person who is specially appointed by the Catholic Church, generally a priest, who is in charge of assessing whether or not a person's symptoms are manifesting due to mental illness, physical illness, some external cause, or, in fact, because of demon possession. Ed Warren, of Ed and Lorraine Warren, um, was the only demonologist that was sanctioned by the Catholic Church who was not a priest for many years. I believe that may still be true. I'm not certain. He explains a little bit about what they look for in a case when they're trying to determine the nature of a potential possession. In the book, The Demonologist... The book states that although reports and recommendations submitted by medical examiners and officiating demonologists may often be enough to convince the church authorities of the need for exorcism, usually additional evidence must be brought forward to ratify the need overwhelmingly, especially where the rituale romanum is concerned. For example, tape recordings, photographs, test instrument readings, materialized substances, or objects have occurred. And they love doing this stuff. They were like the first ghost hunters. Yeah. No, they weren't. That's a terrible, terrible analogy. Oh, don't say such things. They were... No, they were great ghost hunters beforehand. They were not the first ghost hunters. Oh, I could tell you stories about the first ghost hunters, and maybe I will, but not today. In the future. In the future. It's William James. We'll talk about it later. Harry Houdini hated them. We'll talk about it later. Stop asking me. Are you talking to your demons? Um, no, I'm talking to my audience. Of course. <laughs> Same thing. Audience. Uh, <laughs> right. This is a real podcast. They have to be submitted as hard physical evidence that is distinctly preternatural phenomena, and that all the phenomena have that preternatural character or demeanor. 
when applicable. They have to confirm that unnatural activity has gone on in the presence of others, when it's applicable, that there have been changes in character or demeanor. The criteria for judging possession, particularly for Catholic exorcisms, is very strict. Because in addition to all of the above, no judgment of exorcism will be given unless there is at least one yes answer to one of the four critical questions that follow. Has the individual divulged hidden or future knowledge? <sighs> Has the possessed individual spoken in tongues or languages previously unknown to him? Like Pig Latin. Igley. <laughs> I can't speak good Latin. You aren't possessed. Yeah, I'm not. Has the individual demonstrated inhuman powers or brought about activity distinctly beyond the bounds of human ability? Superhuman strength. Right. Has the possessing entity identified itself by name or given some indisputable sign of a diabolical presence? You know, by reading this, I think that like seventy percent of the Marvel and DC universe are probably possessed. You're probably right. Most superheroes are probably possessed. You know, this was the beginning of the kind of modern exorcisms. And as we mentioned, exorcism has continued to grow. There are actually lots of trained exorcists. In Poland, there are 70 trained exorcists, which is about two times as many as they had a few years ago. There are 300 that are active in Italy, performing exorcisms daily. Uh, One of these Polish priests said that he sees as many as 20 people a week who are under the influence of evil spirits, but that he needs more space to treat them properly. So he's trying to gather funds and build a big exorcism center. Oh, is it like Legoland? I don't There might be rides. Yay! I would not eat the pea soup on the lunch menu. I would not eat the pea soup ever. One of the priests involved in this is Reverend Armoff from Italy, and he said, when asked why people are getting possessed all the time now, I'm going to do you all a favor and uh, read Armoth's quote because I don't think you adequately captured the 82-year-old dean of European exorcist. People don't pray anymore. They don't go to church. They don't go to confession. The devil has an easy time of it. There's a lot more devil worship. People interested in satanic things, seances, and less in Jesus. Are you speaking another language? Fluently. Maybe you are possessed. And you know, Trojanowski was trying to, you know, build up what he's been doing, saying, you know, my remedy is based on spiritual means, which cannot be replaced by any pharmaceutical remedies. I do not stop at the level of just treating symptoms. I'm very much interested in the soul of a person. As a priest, I keep asking questions a doctor will never ask. Take a little offense to that. <laughs> I ask lots of questions. I know you do, huh? Like, I'm like, what's your favorite color? And they're like, green. I'm like, what's your favorite dinosaur? They're like, Archaeopteryx. Or Tyrannosaurus Rex. It's always Tyrannosaurus Rex. You know, I actually did go to Catholic school in South Louisiana. Which is another country. Which is another country. They do speak another language. And one of our priests was a certified exorcist in the Catholic Church. Oh my god, that's so interesting. And so he would tell us stories about exorcisms he did. And they did sound a lot like the things we've read about. It's just It was very interesting, especially to a 15-year-old boy. I think it's interesting now when I am a 21-year-old woman. <laughs> so, you're a Catholic. Yeah. A lapsed Catholic. Kinda. <laughs> you were educated by an exorcist in your younger days you were put through the rite of medical school and now you are a doctor a real live honest to god living breathing doctor scientist 
I guess so. So, how does a good cradle Catholic like yourself reconcile modern medicine with exorcism? A lot of people like to say that possession is not related to psychiatric disorders. And then other people like or to like say... Or like priests? Or priests, like some of the people that say things like that? No, more like... Yes. Yes. Yes, they, they do. Because their job, before they exercise somebody, is to declare that it's not a psychiatric problem. Okay. Like Usually they do have psychiatrists and doctors in on it to rule that out first. How do we get you in on it? Because I think that sounds like a party. That sounds terrible. <laughs> but interestingly enough, in the DSM-4, which is kind of the manual for psychiatry, right? it has the diagnostic criteria, and there is uh, something called dissociative disorders. And you may have heard of some of these dissociative disorders before. There's like dissociative fugue. Is dissociative identity disorder a dissociative disorder? It is. I'm so smart. So that's the diagnosis formerly known as MPD, if it were releasing an album. I guess, multiple personality disorder. There is a lot of debate within the psychological community on if that is a real thing or not, by the way. Really? On DID, just in general? Right. A lot of people want it out. They want it out of the DSM whenever they update it to the DSM-5. So in the DSM, they would put these research diagnoses. So these are diagnoses that aren't necessarily formal. What do you mean formal? So formal would be something like dissociative identity disorder is a formal diagnosis. You can give someone that diagnosis. There is a lot of research on it. There is established criteria, and it can be diagnosed. So criteria, definitive. It can be definitively said, yes, a person has it, or no, a person doesn't based on research and a collective consensus about what it means to have this presentation of this. Right. There's okay. literally like a checklist for each diagnosis. Okay, cool. So formal, got it. So there is a category called dissociative disorders, non-otherwise specified. And within that, one of the research criteria is dissociative trance disorder, also known as dissociative possession trance disorder if you were going to do ascribe a research criteria to someone what does that mean like what does that enact it's almost like a proposed definition of it that has not been formally accepted by the american board of psychology okay and the board that heads the dsm so it's not like this person has to be subjected to research it's like this is under construction basically yes buffering yes it's buffering you get a little wheel of death with this, there is, it's really interesting. I, you know, I did not know about this before we started researching it. And for the trance, the definition is that you have a temporary marked alteration in the state of consciousness or a loss of customary sense of personal identity without replacement by an alternate identity with either awareness of immediate surroundings being unusually narrow or selective stimuli our stereotype behavior or movements beyond one's control. Now, I take this one step further to the possession trance dissociation, where it's a similar episodic alteration in the state of consciousness characterized by the replacement of personal identity by a new identity that is attributed to the influence of spirit power or another person as evidenced by stereotypes and culturally determined movements and experience that you're being controlled by the possessing agent. And you can also have full or partial amnesia. Now, there's some really important words in that definition. And what do you think they are? 
replacement, I would think, is a very important word. It is important because that separates it from the trance definition. Right. Attributed to the influence of a spirit power. I would think that's a highly unusual thing to see in a medical text. Uh, Culturally determined. Culturally determined. Yeah, that's the really important key to this. Because this is a cultural definition. It's one of the reasons why this is not a formal diagnosis. You know, differences in cultures clearly influence almost all mental disorders. And so the content of religious delusions would be different in different religions. Many people have compared exorcism to like cognitive behavioral therapy and other psychotherapies. This isn't the generally accepted idea, but it's an interesting thought. So cognitive behavioral therapy would be what? So that's whenever you look at your thoughts and how they affect your actions and the other way around. So how is exorcism like that? Because it says stop doing that in the name of Jesus. Kind of. So it's really interesting. Well, remember that you're saying in the name of Jesus, but in other cultures, it can be any sort of spirit or demon. This is really common in Africa, in India. In some of these cultures, sometimes possession can be seen frequently in women. And it's seen as women being able to use this culturally accepted form to express these urges anger so possession being the culturally accepted form and they can express anger sexuality trying to bring up problems they're having without it affecting themselves right without it being something that they're doing they can say why did you leave the sweet and low wrappers on the counter today in a really angry voice why do you always do that Because I'm possessed by a demon. Okay. So in this situation, what you're talking about, in a culture that wouldn't respond well to a woman, let's say, showing forceful anger at her mate, she can come in and confront him with something truly terrible and then literally say, the devil made me do it, and advocate responsibility for what she's done in a culturally approved and understood way. Exactly. Okay, that's very interesting. Yeah, and then some people are looking at this and they're trying to compare it to other dissociative disorders, like dissociative identity disorder, and using that criteria and saying a lot of these people that are saying they're possessed just have dissociative identity disorder, which both of those diagnoses are extremely controversial. So looking at those diagnoses, along with the criteria used by demonologists and priests to determine if someone's possessed, you have things like hidden knowledge, which is something that you can't assess medically, I think. Like a person shows hidden or future knowledge. You have speaking in tongues, which I was going to ask you about that, because one of the things I read about Roland Doe is that he spoke Persian while he was in the rows of his possession, which right. is obviously a, bo- a nice Lutheran language that a nice Lutheran boy from Maryland wouldn't have come across. Right. It's hard to say exactly what the cause of that is. There are people that have had strokes or other head traumas that come out speaking in different dialects. Right. Like, I remember a woman who I think was in a coma and when she woke up began speaking in a British dialect and everyone assumed she was faking it and she lost friends and things. And- There's just that interesting confluence of psychology and spirituality in these emerging countries. It's not like people have ever explained religion by looking at biology. There's no biological 
basis for religion. Except there is a ton of research on this. And one of my favorite things, and one of the internet's favorite things, is the God Helmet. What one? What's it do? Do I get to be a God if I wear it? It's not a Bruce Almighty thing. The God Helmet was created by Michael Pressinger. Put you in a helmet that creates electromagnetic fields. And what these fields are doing are activating certain parts of the brain. So he's activating the right hemisphere of the brain around the temporal lobe. So he's sending EM signals into the right hemisphere of the brain, where your emotions are. Stimulating that cerebral region is presumed to control your notions of self. And the left hemisphere, which is more of where your language is, is called upon to make sense of this non-existent entity, which is established by the EM signals to the right side of the brain, and generates a sense presence. So he makes ghosties. Could be. Could be ghosts. Interesting thing about this is he's done this on hundreds and hundreds of people. Oh, how kind of him. Yeah, I mean, they're they're all college students. Oh, well, (laughs) college sophomores. Canadians. Oh, well, then let's do it to all of them. (laughs) Just kidding. Canadians are great. America needs a hat. And people did label these ghostly perceptions as different things, depending on their culture and the things they believed in. You know, it could be Jesus, Mary, Muhammad, the sky spirit. Some people saw relatives. And one agnostic that was into UFOs described like a UFO alien abduction-like scenario. So, right, when this is being stimulated, it sort of forces you into having a paranormal experience of some sort. Because... It's stimulating a place in your brain that, what? Why does this make a person a thing? Like, and so you're stimulating there's something else there. And okay, then, so it makes you sense something that isn't there. Right, almost in almost like an out-of-body experience. Okay, this is with your perception. So exactly. like your intake is altered and your brain is scrambling trying to put this into various schemas or little mental boxes so it can categorize this experience and understand it. Exactly, your brain is always trying to categorize everything. And so it will categorize this in the way that you can understand it. It's important to say that their eyes are closed during this experiment. I would think that would totally enhance the effect. Right, definitely. And, you know, he thinks that this could be the reason for anything that can be described as paranormal. So we've trained brains to interpret strange happenings in different ways. Every culture has their folklore, their religion, their, you know, things that go bump in the night. So when this button's pushed... Our brain's response is to try and assign it some kind of meaning. So we're going to go to this kind of weird place, like things that are not understood. Pushing the presence button, we're searching our database. We're going, oh, look, weird shit, and pushing that button. And then we're opening the weird shit folder and assigning an identity to the presence from that folder. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, so it's a great book by Julian Jaynes. He's a Princeton psychologist who is extremely controversial. It came out in the 70s. Called The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicarnial Mind. He argued that the brain activity of ancient people prior to the early evidence of consciousness, such as logic, reason, ethics, could resemble that of modern schizophrenics. You know, they heard voices and they saw things. And that they didn't have individual identity that characterizes a more advanced mind. I would think that would be very controversial. Right, you're saying that all of our ancestors were schizophrenic. Or that schizophrenics aren't as evolved as the rest of us. Yeah, schizophrenics do have a smaller frontal lobe. 
which the frontal lobe is the biggest part of the brain that has grown over the years. Now, I'm not saying that schizophrenics are less evolved, but you can kind of see where that jumbled idea comes from. Where that straight white male privileged Princeton educated man <laughs> would have maybe wanted to think that, I guess, yeah. It's like women's weigh- brains weighing less, therefore they're not fit to do extreme mental tasks. So charming. Ah, phrenology. A rabbit hole for another day. Another little scientific tidbit. A study um, in temporal lobe epileptics. So an epileptic is someone who has frequent seizures. often need to be on medication to control these seizures. Right, but having epilepsy doesn't mean you're mentally ill. No, definitely not. But in these temporal lobe epileptics, they compared them to people without temporal lobe epilepsy. And they gave them certain words to see how they would respond to it. And studies, I'm not sure it was an fMRI or, or PET scan, showing which parts of the brain can activate it more. So they'd give them stimulus such as, no, they'd just read out words. They'd say words. So they would and, say words to people who are either temporal lobe epileptics. That seems more specific than just epileptic. Mm-hmm. And they took a group of people who did not have that condition, presumably, you know, Joe Sixpacks of the world, and they read both groups' list of words. Yeah, and these words were divided into three different groups. You had your neutral words, and that include, like, table. Banana. Your religious words. Jesus. Your erotic words. Penis. And look to see the different kind of reactions you would get in the brain. In your standard person, you would see uh, more of a response to the erotic words. Like penis. I just want you to blush as you're driving down the highway. That's really all I'm trying to do here. And interestingly enough, in temporal lobe epileptics, they had more of a response to religious words. Communion. I just wanted the temporal lobe epileptics in our audience to have the same opportunity to blush going down the highway. So, that seems like a really rare diagnosis. I assume that we don't have a rash of people with temporal lobe epilepsy claiming to be possessed by demons. There are plenty of people with temporal lobe epilepsy that are not possessed and do not think that they have demons and do not have any sort of psychological illness. Okay, so end of story? Never. Was there a temporal lobe epileptic who was possessed by demons? Of course. Who was that? Annalise Mikkel. She was a temporal lobe epileptic? That's Mm -hmm. incredibly interesting. So now we're going to get into the final issue. As I was researching exorcism, one of the foremost examples of what can go wrong that comes up again and again as you read about the subject is this West German student named Annalise Mikkel. She was raised in a strict Catholic family in Bavaria, and they rejected the reforms of Vatican II. They were involved with religious fringe groups, kind of always looking for their place. Mikkel was very burdened by the idea that people were sinners and she made a great effort to atone for her sins as well as the sins of others she was incredibly devout very pious took her religion quite seriously she would sleep on the bare floor she tried to emulate like a nun or or the suffering of jesus she wanted to To, take the suffering of jesus upon herself right well to atone for sins of others right she had an epileptic seizure when she was 16 and she was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy, which is incredibly interesting considering everything that followed. She was also diagnosed with depression 
and treated at a psychiatric hospital. At 20, she became intolerant to various religious objects, and she began to hear voices. So, under the influence of the demons that she perceived to be present, she ripped off her clothes. She compulsively performed 400 squats a day, which it would take demonic influence to make me do 400 squats a day. You squat, bro. I don't even lift. She crawled under a table and barked like a dog for two days. She ate spiders. She ate coal. It took a lot to make me eat spiders. Less than the squats. She bit the head off a dead bird. She licked her own urine from the floor, which means she had to have first urinated on the floor, which is... Anyway. Please tell me you would do squats before you did that. I would do squats for it. Not 400, though. So despite being medicated and receiving treatment for her depression and psychologically related symptoms, she continued to become worse. The family recognized immediately that she was possessed. I mean, if you're a devout Catholic family who's like, no, I liked the Latin... I don't want this Vatican II nonsense. You're going to say, my daughter's possessed, not my daughter's lost. So they went to priests and tried to get them to come and do an exorcism. And at first, the church hesitated. They did not want to do this. But eventually, two priests were given permission to do the ritual. And over the course of 10 months, they performed the ritual 67 times in secret as ordered by the bishop. Always in secret. It's always in secret. What demons possessed her? Well... Um, there was a list, so according to the voices of the demons, or Annalise, whichever you choose to believe, she was possessed at various times by Cain, of biblical fame, like the one that killed his brother, I'm not my brother's keeper, that one, Nero, who fiddled while Rome burned, Judas, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, Lucifer, the devil, you know, that guy, Hitler, of course, art student, oh no he wasn't, and um, more, and more. And uh, one of my favorite bits about Annalise was that the demons would answer the priest's questions and explain what was wrong with the church, why they were in hell. And Hitler said, people are as stupid as pigs. They think it's all over after death, but it goes on. But Judas said that Hitler had no real say in hell. So, and he had a big mouth. (laughs) Nothing but a big mouth, that Hitler. Judas knows how to put somebody in their place. Both priests were very insistent that the demons identified themselves, and they believed that, I guess we're going to do a bit of a spoiler alert here, that she was finally freed because of an exorcism that they'd done just before her death. So she died? She died. She died of malnutrition. How'd that happen? Well, she wouldn't eat or drink. She weighed 68 pounds at the time of her death. What did the priests do? Well, they were found guilty of negligent homicide, if that's what you're asking. As were her parents. They were sentenced to six months in jail. It was reduced to three years of probation and a fine. Many, many people believe that this case in particular is a an example of a misdiagnosed mental disorder. Right. I cannot help but think that this is a case of misidentified schizophrenia. It really just fits with the picture so well. Why is that? Well, she's hearing voices. Mm-hmm. Lots of paranoia. Mm-hmm. They're telling her what to do. Of course, she's also having other symptoms of, like, depression, things like that, which can go along with it. could also argue they would fit in with the other psychological diagnosis we talked about earlier. But this case really seems like a missed psych diagnosis. I think it's interesting, too, because unlike Roland, the first boy we talked about, you know, she grew up highly exposed to these ideas. I would think angels and demons come into play in a very strict Catholic household more than they would in just, you know, your standard WASP 
family in America. By the way, this took place in 76. I don't know if I said the date. Doe grew up not a Catholic. He was not incredibly devout, whereas Annalise was intimately involved in this sort of grand play of good and evil forever feeling that she was possessed. So her assignations would have been very different. If we're looking at one case is more likely to be like a, a delusion than the other, I think that this one stands out as having more flags. Oh, it's interesting. By the way, we didn't mention, this is the case that The Exorcism of Emily Rose, that film, was based on this story. Yeah, but something that was really interesting was the German priests after this were up in arms, feeling that the heart of the problem was that they were speaking directly to the devil, you know, imperatively, saying, you know, I command the unclean spirit. And that part of the rite seemed to be, like, really damaging. It confirmed to the patient that they were truly possessed. Uh, they wanted that taken out. And it seems like a really logical step to me. Like, I can see what they're saying. A person in a position of authority is coming in and saying, you are possessed. I deem you possessed. You know, in a case like this where there's some murky water surrounding the diagnosis, I can see how that would make it almost inescapable for a person who was undergoing this ritual. Right. The exorcism was revised in 1999. And quote from one of the priests says, we were astonished when Rome issued a changed exorcism formula in 1999, which left open the possibility of speaking to the devil directly. But you can't know for certain that a patient is truly possessed of the devil. It's so interesting because that's someone in the ho- that believes in exorcism so sincerely saying you can't know. Saying as man should that we're not always perfect, that we can be at fault. Well, I'm going to quote Ed Warren a little bit more. Um, when he was asked about Annalise's death, an authority on exorcism, he says, people have asked me this question many times. But usually they aren't prepared for the real answer. I end up sidestepping the issue by explaining that not all exorcisms have a happy ending. But the reason this German girl died is because she had to. The case is complicated, but it amounts to murder on the part of the demonic. The girl was a soul victim, as the church calls it. She came under possession, not because she'd done anything wrong, but because she was good. This happens about once every ten years. The religious term for it is iniquity. This means gross moral crime. The demonic seized on the girl because she was a devout kindly human being. It possessed her body in a deliberate effort to impurify her and to provoke a confrontation with the Almighty. So, the act of possession had both physical and metaphysical significances. You know, I hate to argue with Ed Warren, but I completely 100% disagree. It's okay, I won't tell him. In your seance, you won't tell him? Right. My Ed Warren seance party. Hey, if you guys want to come to the Ed Warren seance party, it's... Okay, you, you don't want to come. Fine. Yeah, you have fun with that. I'm going to completely disagree and say that this was a missed psychological diagnosis. There was a medical problem that should have been taken care of by medical professionals. If anything... Ed Warren goes on to say that the medical professionals had three years worth of chance to fix it. You know, even with that, the priest killed her. The priest didn't kill her. She wouldn't eat. There are ways to get around that. Like what? Like feeding tubes. So you think she should have been sedated and put on a feeding tube forever? Not forever. How long? Until she breaks out of her psychotic episode. It took ten months! They were enforcing it. Oh, I see. That actually kind of makes sense. Okay. 
<laughs> Wait, did you say I'm right? No, no, <laughs> no, never. So this is an interesting intersection between psychology and religion that may never be reconciled. In addition to that, Bobby Jindal claims to have performed an exorcism. Yes, that's a great, I can't remember if it was GQ or Esquire article about it. Take a second, go read it. Okay, how was it? Right? Entertaining. Right? He should definitely be the next president. Oh, yes. He could exercise ISIS. Good plan, Bobby. So you're right. This is an interesting crossroads between psychology, medicine, and religion. Are these people truly possessed? Is this a psychological problem that's presenting with religious Tones based on just what they have in their mind as what could be causing this? Is this something that should be treated in a medicinal way, in a religious way, in a combination of the two? Or is it just a story? Maybe it's just a story. 